to Mark chapter 2. We're continuing where we left off a couple weeks ago. About this paralytic. Just a reminder, there were four points. We got two points done. But let's go ahead and read the story in its total. Starting in verse 1, and again he entered into Capernaum, and after, or again he entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. So Jesus couldn't stay hidden for long. And he preached the word unto them. And that's what we should be doing today, preach the word. Uh, And that's exactly the same wording that Paul would later use, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born afore. Now we don't know much about this person with the palsy. He was just one sick of the palsy in here in English. Uh, there's, there's nothing defined or qualified about him. Could be anybody. And it's not necessarily confined to just the four. There were four that carried him, but there may have been others that were part of bringing him. But they, they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And they could not come nigh unto him for the press. So people were literally pressing towards the door so they could hear Jesus teaching. When they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Now that's the scene. Now, then we talked about the controversy. When Jesus saw their faith, And we see something about the nature of faith. Uh, Faith is something that is seen in works. (laughs) Amen. That's James chapter 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes. Now, who were the scribes again? Well, the scribes were... Uh, the people handling the Word of God. They were part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, they, They were really people who were experts in the Word of God. Part of what they did is they were literally scribes. They copied out the Word of God to for others to have copies, and that was a painstaking process. But they were literally called in to question or answer questions. That's what was their specialty, to answer questions about what the Scriptures say. So they were experts. Why were they there? There were some questions. There were some questions people were having about Jesus Christ. And they were there, no doubt, to try to answer. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. They were sitting there as judges. (laughs) Why does this man thus speak blasphemy? And in a wooden reading of this text would, why is he speaking like this? 
he blasphemes. So they had reached their judgment. Who can forgive sins but God? And that's where we left off, the controversy. And they are right in the second part. No one can forgive sins but God. Amen? With God there is forgiveness of sins. He, according to law, uh, forgives thousands and, and um, uh, there is forgiveness with God and so on and so forth. There were a lot of places we can show, uh, even down to the New Covenant in Jeremiah, which, uh, which Brother Ken was dealing with on Wednesday. Uh, I will forgive sins. It's something that is in His power and His power alone. Why? Because who are we sinning against? All right, we're sending things against, against God, against His law. We're transgressing His commandments. So He, so it would seem a little odd if I just come over here and I smacked Jeff really hard, Brother Jeff. I'm not literally going to do that, and I always thank you for allowing me to use you as an example. If I smack Brother Jeff really hard and I go back to, 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 to Mary and say, Mary, will you please forgive me for slapping Jeff? That wouldn't make sense, right? So who can forgive sins but God? So that's the truth. They, they are connecting the truth. Now, they're forgetting a lot of things. And we're going to deal with that today. But such as the Lord's one day going to come. That's, and He's going to come into His temple. The Lord, I haven't asked the question, is this the Lord? And Jesus is going to continue on. So we've gone from the scene to the controversy and now let's talk about the infallible interpretation. Let's read the rest of the text. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he says to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never saw it on this fashion. Now, we have an infallible interpretation of what Christ says. What six little words there in verse 5 are going to be explained now by Christ. Christ gives assurance here of what he taught in verse 5. Remember, he's teaching. He was sitting there teaching. This man comes to the roof. He's still teaching when he speaks. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. That's part of what he was teaching, and now he's going to demonstrate it. He's going to, just, he's going to demonstrate it first by words and then by works. So here in verse, in verse 8, we pick up, and I'm just going to march through the text again, uh, where we have this temporal clause, and immediately when... So a temporal clause 
Uh, the idea immediately when Jesus perceived or right after Christ, right after he knew, he immediately said, but he is responding to the controversy of what he said. And I hope last, a couple weeks ago we really got into this, why is this controversial? Uh, because, and so we're not going to go back over that. So Christ is responding, and this idea, the word, per, word here perceived is to fully know. When he perceived... Um, when he fully know, uh, Vincent's word study says the preposition epi gives to the word genos, uh, gives the force of fully doing something. He was not only immediately aware of their thoughts, he was fully aware of their thoughts. So let, let me just challenge you with a thought here as we read the words. The inward musings and thoughts that you have right now are known by God. Uh, this is the one with eyes of fire and revelation. Uh, and they do not escape uh, the notice of Christ. Uh, anybody ever seen The Truman Show? <laughs> uh, the movie The Truman Show. I actually like the movie, if I can find an edited version of it. Um, and um, at the end, he speaks to the God figure there, and he says, you were never, I was always free in here. And that's not so with the true God. That's not so here with Christ. John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 says, He knew all men. How many men does he know? How much of mankind does he know? All of them. He knew all men and needed not that... Any should testify of man. So he doesn't have to have someone cap his shoulder right now and says, Hey, do you, do you know what Thomas is thinking about right now? Do you, you know what his... He already knows about Thomas. He doesn't need that anybody testifies about Brother Thomas at all uh, or anyone else. He knows, he does not need that anybody should testify of man for he knew what was in man. He already knew what was in man. So this is the Christ. So we're already seeing something about the narrative as Mark is presenting Christ in this narrative. Remember, people say, well, Mark wasn't presenting him as Lord. Matthew and Luke came and corrected Mark, and there was this process. No, Mark is presenting Christ as Lord. Amen? So the man, Christ Jesus, by and through his spirit, he says here, and immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirits, or he had a spiritual sin. He knew the thoughts of those that thought that they sat as his judge. Jesus Christ had a human spirit, a human soul. He was God-man. Well, you don't want to say 100%, 100%, but everything that was unique about man, he had. Uh, Psalm, uh, uh, that word spirit, soul, uh, we, we get into the, uh, I don't know if you can divide soul and spirit like it says for uh, uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, but Isaiah 53 in verse 10 and 11 tells us that he had a human soul. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He was a man, and he knew, he perceived in his spirits. I like to note that Bengal had here. He says, the prophets became cognizant of things through the Spirit of God, but not with their own spirit. Christ with his own spirit which is omniscient and divine, new. Now, why is this important? He is looking in the hearts of the people sitting in front of us, and he's still looking in the hearts of people today. 
1 Samuel 16, verse 7. You don't have to turn there. You know the story. Choosing a king, what does God say? He says, man looks on the outward appearance. That's as much as I can do. I can look at you, and I can maybe if you've got some body language, like you're saying, man, I wish this preacher would hurry up. I'm getting tired or anything like that. I can judge some body language. I can judge things, but I don't know your heart. Jesus does. All right? Man looks on the outward appearance. God knows the heart. He says to the king there in 1 Chronicles 28, 20, or 28 9, God searches the hearts. So who is Mark saying, what is Mark saying about Jesus? He knew. And as God is apt to do, he answers them, and he, and he answers them with a question. The question served the purpose of revealing what was in their hearts. They weren't speaking this. Maybe they were giving little eye switches back and forth to kind of communicate like you and I uh, may do. But he reveals the purposes of, of their hearts here. And he is not necessarily asking about the content, but the cause. Why? He is not asking what, but why. Why reason you these things in your heart? It, it points out what they know. He is examined, he's asking, why is this in your heart? What do they know as scribes? Well, they know what Jeremiah told them about the heart. The heart is deceitful, above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? He says, I've looked into your heart. Why are you reasoning like this? There's a heart issue here. And, and uh, there was nothing in the words or works of Christ by which they could so reason like this, is what he's pointing out. Why are you reasoning? Why are you coming to the conclusion so quick that this is blasphemy? Why do you so reason in your hearts? He's asking the why, not the what. Um, there was nothing in the scriptures that precluded this belief. That the Lord would walk among them, like we said a couple weeks ago. The Lord, they, they, there was an expectation. The Lord was coming to His temple. The Lord is coming to His people. Why are they? Why have they shut the door of this knowledge so fast and so tight, so quickly? What is it that have made their hearts so adamant here? To where they can say the Lord has not come in this person. Matthew highlighted that this was an accusation of wickedness. In Matthew 9.4, in the same account, he says, Why do you think so wickedly in your hearts? What we got to realize and what we always have to battle is this. We are, a lot of our interpretations of things comes out of a wicked heart. <laughs> And if it's, not, if it's not submitted to the Word of God, we can and do go wrong quickly. Christ draws attention to His evidence. Whether is it easier? What is easier here? For me to say something like, Arise, take up your bed and walk. Or to say, Your sins are forgiven thee. Which one is easier? And by asking this, he's asking a deeper question. What basis do you delimit or put a limit on what I can do? Now let us review a little bit what, what he's already done. What has he been doing? 
He's been healing the sick. He's been casting out demons. He has been healing all manner of illnesses and giving strength to people. And he has been teaching with great authority. So they already know he has authority. And they say, okay, your authority can only go so far, though. We're talking earlier about, uh, about worshiping a God that we made, in our, <laughs> we made our, in our own minds. And I've been praying through, the, uh, praying through the Ten Commandments to try to make it a habit of doing so, uh, where it talks about the, uh, 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 making a graven image. And we want to say, God is this and nothing more. Uh, and I pray that the Lord will help me to worship God as He is and as He's declared Himself and not and by my own concepts and limits I create them. This is what they're doing. The Lord is standing before them and it says the Lord's authority only goes so far. Or as we talked about in Sunday school, uh, uh, you know, He's the Lord of space. He's, or, uh, uh, he's, he's, he's the Lord here and He's the Lord there and He's the Lord there. Or in Psalm 139, if I go here, He's there. If I go there, He's there. If I go all the way over there, He's still there and He's still God. So what do they turn? On what basis do they delimit him? By this word or authority he has taught, he has healed, he has exercised authority, and he has done all of this by his own authority, and now he says something else, and they say, wait, 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 you don't have that much authority. Which of these is easier? The authority proclaimed would be declared in both statements. Arise, take up your bed and walk, that's authority. Your sins are forgiven you. That's authority. The authority is, is there in both statements. But one, what's the difference between these statements? One is walking by sight and the other is walking by faith, I guess. Uh, one is evident in, in the visible effect and the other is unseen. And that's about it. If he told the man to rise, they would, not, they would be able to clearly see that the limitations that this man had, being paralyzed, would melt away by the authority of his word. And they would know that his authority extended that far. And they should already know that his, extended, his authority extended that far. And thus the question. They would see the man rising. They would see the man walking freely. They would see the man carrying the very object that once carried him and going back to the home of his family whole and complete and consequently they had already seen it like i said if that same authority can say and it is done what is in our sight then can we not infer could they not infer that that same authority can do what is not seen as well the sinner was brought and his authority said that this sinner was forgiven and they say whoa whoa he can't do that. He did what you can verify, though. Why can you not believe that he can do what you cannot verify? And I'm, I praise God, first of all, that he has verified. He has showed with many infallible proofs who he is. He has shown himself. All three synoptics ask the same confronting question. I like how Gill sums it up here. He says, both of them were easy to say. 
Both of these statements were easy to say, but not with power and effect. They were both instances of divine power and proofs of deity. And only he that could do the one could also do the other. And the one was easy to be performed by a divine person as the other. And though it may be hard to say which is the greater instance of power or the strongest proof of deity to pardon a sinner or to cure a paralytic by a word of speaking, yet curing of the palsy in the manner in which Christ did was a more sensible proof of his deity to the scribes and Pharisees in pronouncing a man's sins forgiven, because this was visible and could not be denied, whereas the other, though pronounced, they might question whether it had its effect. But by the one which they would see done before their eyes, they would be left no room for them to doubt of the reality of the other. So to claim either is easy. But he, what is he saying? Which, which is easier? Not only is it easy for him to say, take up your bed and walk, but he was able. And the other is equally easy to say. Both were impossible outside a divine power. I'm going somewhere, I promise you. <laughs> I'm getting to the meat here. This is all just kind of fodder. The power to do the latter is often proved by Christ. John 5, 8, for instance. He raises the people that are lame. But here his role is, like I said, is that of a teacher. And he gives his end. Verse 10, but that ye may know, he's still teaching. And he has an end. And he's going to say that you may know this. And then he'll turn to the person that has the palsy, the paralytic, and he will say what he just said. He's going to do this demonstration of his power. Now, I don't want to get into the interjection here, but yet, but that you may know, and he's going to get into what he does, the demonstration. We're still talking about, we're still talking about his interpretation. I love it here recently. I've been running into it everywhere. When Jesus Christ gives us a statement of faith about himself. Amen? Amen. We're talking about that. The Father is in me. I am in the Father. That's a, he says you did believe that. That was the content of something we should believe about Christ. Here he is giving like content. Christ is teaching Christology. All right? Uh, for, for those that are sitting in the theology in the first hour. So Christ is teaching about Christ. Here. He's giving us content. The doctrine of Christ taught by Christ himself. And he gives three things. He says the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I want to spend just a few minutes on each of these points. First, he identifies himself as the Son of Man. That's important. Second, he declares that the Son of Man has power or authority. Third, he gives specific dispensation to that power to include the forgiveness of sins. And all of these answer their theological objection, and if they knew the scriptures, they were thoroughly refuted. First, 
We've talked about this before. He declares himself to be the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Anybody know? Jesus is Son, but who? What is this figure, Son of Man? By the way, it's the term that Jesus used about himself more than any other term. He's constantly calling himself Son of Man. In fact, he's always talking about the Son of Man in the third person. When the Son of Man comes, you know, or uh, not when the Son of Man comes, but, but, uh, but you shall see the Son of Man. He talks about it in third person so much so that famous atheist or agnostic Bart Ehrman says that the son, Jesus believed the Son of Man was this apocalyptic figure, someone other than himself, because it was always used in the third person to talk about the Son of Man. But that just ignores what the Scriptures say. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He's the one here that forgave. And he says the Son of Man has power to forgive. Or, let's get a little bit more exact. Matthew 16, he's in verse 13, he asks the disciples a question. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus is the Son of Man, according to the Scriptures. So who is the Son of Man? What is this figure, Son of Man? What does this have to do with anything? Jesus saw himself as this thing. Well, first, let's go to the Old Testament. We were talking earlier. Christianity just sitting into existence 2,000 years ago. It was according to the Scripture. So we've got to go back to the Old Testament and find out who is the Son of Man. Psalm 2 is probably talking about this figure. It doesn't use the term son of man. It just used the term son. But first of all, we would say that if you were to search son of man in your Bible app on your phone, you would find it is used often in Ezekiel as a title of, his, of him as a prophet. Right? Uh, God says to the son of man, Ezekiel, the prophet, this or that. It's also the title of mankind who is engraced by God. Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? And talks about how everything is put under the feet of mankind. And Ephesians, or Hebrews 2 tells us that that is Christ. But... Neither of these directly is, is, is what is being invoked here. This is the first of 15 times Mark uses this, and all three synoptics in this instance highlight that he says this, the Son of Man has power. Now, what is the Son of Man? So this is very important to the story. Outside of the Jewish context of the four Gospels, the words Son of Man is hardly ever used. So once you get out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do you know what you're not going to find used? The title, Son of Man. You will find it a couple times in the book of Revelation, and that's about it. Why? Because... The telling of the Gospels tells the Gospels. The Gospels are being told in a very Jewish context. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. 
It's an essential truth about prophecy. And yes, Bart Ehrman did have something good to say, even though he is an agnostic. It's an apocalyptic figure in the Old Testament. Jesus himself said in John chapter 1 to Nathanael, or Holly says I mispronounced that and everybody thinks I'm weird. It's, it's Nathaniel, she says. So forgive me. He says, you shall see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's going to say in the book of Mark here, for instance, in Mark 14, 62, when he is being hit by the priest's servants, he says, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in power and sitting at the right hand of power on high. And then they rip their garments after he says that and says, it's blasphemy. That's kind of what they're doing here in our text. Why is it blasphemy? Daniel 7. Daniel 7 and verse 9. I beheld, and this is regarding this prophecy of the captivity of Israel. It is a Jewish expectation of the coming of their Lord. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and hair as of his head was like pure wool. Let me ask you, do we, do we got a description like this somewhere in the New Testament, don't we? Revelation chapter 1, and who was that? It's Christ. All right. Whose hair was like wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, his, and his wheels as burning fire. Kind of related a little bit to Ezekiel as well. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands and thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set. The books were open. Now look at verse 13. I saw in the light night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. We think this is about the second coming. No, this is about the ascension of Christ. He ascended and he sat down at the right hand of the power on high. And they brought unto him, him near before him, and there was given him, the Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom and all people, nations and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. That is the Son of Man. By the way, that was fulfilled. When Jesus died, when Jesus was buried, when Jesus rose again the third day and ascended, all of that, I have declared a decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee. We just sung the song, right? Psalm 2. This is the coming one. What is he saying? The Son of Man has power. He calls himself the Son of Man, but he is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one that came from the Ancient of Days and is going to the Ancient of Days, who's going to rule, who's going to have dominion forever and ever. That's what he is saying. We should not be ignorant of, what, of the Scriptures here. He is saying a lot, and he is saying that he is the Lord to be exalted, the Lord visiting his people, the King of the Jews, 
the king of kings. That's what he is saying about himself. Second, quickly, Christ claims that as the Son of Man, he has authority. That is inherent with, the, with saying he is the Son of Man means that he has authority. He has power. That was the claim he made of himself there. Don't tell me that Jesus Christ was just some, was just some other guy walking around and, and uh, he, he uh, didn't know who he was. He did. He says the Son of Man has, present tense, power, authority now. And it had to be recognized. And how dare they sit and say, your power can only go so far. Because the scriptures don't say that. It says his power is an everlasting power. All dominion is his. Then third, he claims a specific dispensation to the power. His, he says, I have power on earth. In other words, in the here and the now. As king of kings and lord of lords, as absolute authority, his authority includes the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing left that is not put under the feet of the Son. And I, we've been singing about it. We've been talking about it all day. There is nothing that is not under Him. All power is given to Him. Therefore we go. Amen? The authority includes the forgiveness of sins. And I just messed my place up. So all power is given to him. Now forgiving power, he is uh, um, Jameson Fawcett Brown, Bible commentary. Forget, no, now forgiving power dwells in the person of this man and is exercised by him while on this earth and going out and in with them. It says he has power on earth. Why? Because that's, a severe, that's his kingdom. Amen? The kingdom of God has come to man. He has power on earth. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. We, uh, Brother Ken was talking about the blessings of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 34. What is part of the blessings of the new covenant to us? The forgiveness of sins. This is what we preach into all the, wor into all the world. Go ye into every nation, uh, uh, declaring repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Luke 4, 47. The here and the now go into all the earth. The expectation of the coming of Son of Man is this. Uh, Psalm 80. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read out of Psalm 80 just a few verses where it says, Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine talking about Israel, and the vineyard which thy right hand has planted and the branch that thou made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Um, let your hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. 
so will not we go back from thee. Quicken us and we will call upon your name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine upon us and we shall be saved. That's the Son of Man come to visit his vine. He comes with full authority. And now let me just spend two or three minutes. See the scene. We see the controversy. We see the interpretation. And now we see the demonstration. He could have done this without any controversy. But this whole scene was so he can teach one thing. Forgiveness of sin is in him. He says to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up your bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Remember, all this was done that we may know the truth about Christ. He says that you may know. And then he gives us this statement of faith. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. He gives us this thing that we can declare. Christ, Lord of Lord, kings of kings. Forgiveness is there with him. He turns to the object of his mercy. I can see the scene. He's given us some interpretation. Now he just turns and said, get up. By the way, you want some teaching on grace? Here's grace. Did the man have power to get up? Amen. <laughs> but he's told, get up. That's like you and me being told to repent. I didn't have the power to repent. He gave it to me. <laughs> I didn't have the power to believe. He gave it to me. Uh, faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Something granted. But here, here's grace then. He speaks to him, to you I say, arise. To you I say, do that which you do not have the power to do, but I tell you to do. Kind of reminds you, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you. He says to the man that was carried by a bed by others, take up your bed now and carry it. Ben Gell said the bed had been born, had born the man, and now the man was to bore the bed. <laughs> and he was commanded to return whole. Go back to your life whole and complete. That's a divine command. And here's the reaction. I'll give you two reactions and we're done. First, the reaction of the paralytic. By the way, it's passive here. It says, and immediately he arose. That's that verb is passive. You could really. If we didn't get all clunky with our English, we could really say, immediately he was raised. He was raised. So there's a passive verb that's very hard to translate there. And immediately he was raised. And not, and not him, but the authority of Christ that encountered him, raised him. And after, taking, and after that, he took up his bed in obedience. So grace first, then works. Uh, the grace then obedience and not the other way around not obedience and then grace so after that he took up his bed then we have the active verb he departed in the sight of all of them and he this man received grace and according to Luke 5:25, parallel passage from another synoptic he left glorifying God I 
am going to go out on a limb here. I think he went home whole to his whole and healthy to his family, knowing that the greatest miracle that he received that day was he was forgiven of God. I don't know what he did, how he was paralyzed. I don't want to read in the scripture, but I know he had every reason to leave believing he was a son of God now because Jesus called him a son, that he was forgiven because Jesus said he was forgiven. And I think the crowd knew it too. So we have the reaction of the paralytic and then we have the reaction of the crowd. Turn to Psalm 130 and we're going to be done. The reaction of the crowd is very interesting. They could not deny. Matthew 9, 8 reads it like this, But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power to men. Parallel passage in Luke, Luke 5, 26 says this, And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Mark says they were just literally ecstatic. That's the word. We get the word ecstatic from that underlying verb there. Uh, in other words, they were beside themselves. That's how you and I would say it. Or, or, or they were standing outside of themselves. That's what that word ecstatic means. In the face of real authority, they, were, they all too, and presumably even the scribes, glorified God. They couldn't help but glorify God. All three synoptics quote the crowd very differently. Matthew focused on the grace of God that was given to men. Luke focused on the fearfulness of seeing strange work. Mark just said, quotes the crowd as saying, Thus we have never seen. The point of all of this is something unique happened that was obviously divine. It was fearful, it was amazing. And they stood and they witnessed the Lord had come with power. Let me ask you this in closing. How should we react in the presence of the one who can forgive sins? Now, the, the culture, the Christian culture that we live in doesn't even want to believe sin exists. And they go about brazenly in the sin, thinking, well, he's got to forgive me. He's got to forgive me. He's got to just continuing on and on, assuming, presuming on the grace of God. But how should you and I act before the one who can forgive sins? Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4 gives us a good idea of what the people experienced that day. If thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? You ever, you ever feel like that? How sinful are you? No, don't answer me. <laughs> How sinful are you, though, rhetorically speaking? Exceeding sinful. Who would be able to stand before God without the forgiveness of sin? And I love how Psalm 130 says it here. But there is forgiveness with thee that you 
may be feared. It's a fearful thing to sit in front of a God who can forgive sins. And they, that's why they were amazed. They were ecstatic. They stood out of their self. They glorified God and they were filled with fear according to Luke. And they were just amazed that such grace could be given to men. And such grace has indeed the Lord, the promised one of the Old Testament, the King of kings, Lord of lords, did come. And he has fulfilled it all and is set at the right hand of power. And you and I can come and find forgiveness of sins in him. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed. The invitation's open. You can come anytime you want. We'll talk to you about Christ. I would love to see everyone in here know that they are saved. If you're